Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Uh, hey, this is Matthew Bruchet. Uh, we are talking to my father, Rusty Bruchet. How you doing, Matt? Great. Uh, we are back for episode number five. Last episode was a deep dive into the technical mind of Rusty Bruchet. Uh, right. There was no filter there. <laughs> uh, I personally, recovering from a concussion, didn't have the, uh, you know, the stop guard uh, <laughs> Uh, crossing guard sign up to uh, say, hey, maybe we should percolate this up to the top. But we're not going to change that because that's the truth. And that's a really great story about how uh, the very light was invented and what it takes to go through a production process. Right. Um, We talked a lot about um, that part of the story where you and kind of Jim Bornhorst had gone through and set up your product on the table and uh, you know, started doing a bunch of innovation and how that kind of flew into uh, discovering the diacrylic filter and going out and, and generating business and finding right. partners with Genesis and Tony Smith. Um, there are some kind of higher level things that I've thought about since we last talked. And I really wanted to get kind of your thoughts on, okay, so yeah, you, you were doing all this this product and you had all of this really great experience in developing products, there's a lot of people out there building products right now, right. you know, like they're literally in the process of building the product. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people selling products that they haven't built yet. You know, there's a lot of ways to bring products to market now, more so now than there ever has been. Right. Um, you seem to have had a really strong opinion on what's the right way to bring a product to market. Right. And if you were going to write that on a sheet of paper and give somebody a stepping uh, yeah, step by step guide on how to do that. What would what would your advice be? I I think my number one belief is you need to get into physical form as rapidly as possible. So you need to be able to reduce your theoretical idea into something that's physically real as soon as you possibly can to to be able to look at it and feel it and see if it's going to work. Show it to other people and see what they think about it because I found that most people have a difficult time visualizing something that's different than what they already know about. Mm -hmm. And you can talk about it and say, well, what do you think about this? And what if it did that? And so forth. And a lot of people will will act like they understand what you're saying, but they don't really, really get it. You know, it's like trying to sell a house. And if you have a house where you've painted all the walls purple and the bathroom black, and you've got gold tile in the kitchen and you know, brown countertops, and you go to sell it, and, you, and the, the buyer comes in, and you say, well, you know, it really doesn't look so good right now, but visualize this. We're going to paint the walls white, and we're going to put in nice, this, that you lose the guy right immediately. He can't, he's so, he, he can't get it. You know, he's so overwhelmed with what he's looking at or experiencing that his mind won't let him visualize that house. I, I think that actually hammers way. it. Yeah, I think if you, if once somebody experiences something, it yeah. is so overwhelming in persuasion, you know, in persuasion, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, really what I've learned from Dr. Dan over there on the persuasive side is yeah. that experiential is one of the most important things that yeah. you can use to, to get people to buy in. That's exactly right. So you need to have something you can show someone, and you need to show it yourself, too. You need to, you need to make sure that it does what you think it was going to do in your mind when you started coming up with the idea in the yeah, first Yeah, because even your mind's eye is often yeah. wrong. And, yeah. and also, you know, things typically require a lot of tweaking to make them work. You know, it's, uh, it's rare that you can find someone that can draw it on a piece of paper and build it and have it work 
perfectly is always some yeah, gotcha. and, and so like I think a counterweight or a counter argument to that would be okay. Well, what if you're building a spaceship that costs a billion dollars? But the truth is, is that yeah, you got to yeah yeah that's the size and scale of your product. Yeah, and that's what you got to go do. I as an entrepreneur, one of the things that I've always tried to focus on, and it's led me to more success than less, is actually solving a problem that I'm here to solve. Right. Right. And what I mean by that is that I don't have a billion dollars to go build a spaceship. Right. Right. And so really innovating on spaceships is not where I need to spend my time. Right. Um, I mean, collectively, I could get with other people if that was my interest and that's what I wanted to do. I could go join one of the teams that are doing that and play my role. But as an entrepreneur who really wants to be at the helm of the business that I'm starting to build, uh, I find it that I need to focus on things that I can afford to do, right. right? I need to make a product work within twenty, thirty thousand dollars Yeah. Because if I can't generate profits in that time or that amount of money, then it's really just outside my ability. I can't go lose three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars on a product. Right. Um, and I, I find that, you know, as entrepreneurs, uh, I see a lot of people who are trying to solve problems that are really not theirs to solve. That's right. And so you, you have to be able to operate within the realities of your of your situation, but you still need to get something physical as quickly as you can because you can spend a huge amount of money and time trying to build the perfect whatever and never get there because you never bothered to get it into physical form. So, And even going back to the spaceship idea, you know, governments are really the only people that can afford spaceships because it's basically not a business proposition to build a space shuttle to go to the moon. It was a government-funded thing. But even that project, as crazy as it was when we went to the moon, I guarantee you it was broken down into a lot of small teams working on a specific part of it, and they reduced their concepts to physical form, I guarantee you, as quickly as they could, and they did a lot of individual testing to get that whole system to come together. So I still think it's really important to try to make something physical happen quickly. Yeah, so maybe like ideas in a way should be broken down to like that form of stages. But yeah. what you're saying is that no matter how complex it is, it's going to be kind of broken down into buckets. And there's of, going to be teams of people on each bucket. Right. And uh, and they're going to have a specific goal of what they need to do, you know, yeah. and uh, how they how they want to do it. And... Uh, it, it, it's uh, it just, I just find that if you're too theoretical, either on a marketing level or a design level, uh, it can get you into trouble. Yeah, so one of the things that happened, like there's a big movement, and they call it MVP, which means Minimal Viable Product. Yeah. And uh, there's all these books written and kind of thought leaders in the space that talk right. about the MVP. Right. And if there's any difference between our generations, I would actually say that in your world, you probably didn't kind of conceptualize these things as an MVP like they do now. Right. Uh, software and technology and uh, infrastructure that's already built with the cloud and other things allow MVP models, I think, um, as a more viable... I think it is a viable strategy, right. but it's not... Um, I think it's more viable because of the time of today rather right. than before. But what would you say to somebody who... The reason why the MVP model, if I could just sum it up real quick, came about, minimal viable product, is because engineers, maybe even like yourself, were in the, in the office building, 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 
And when you, got, when you put that model into software, you end up, end up building three, five, six, seven million dollars of investment before you had one line of code out into the market. Right. You would put it out into the market, and then the consumer would turn on the computer and be like, nah, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so the idea of like mocking up a screen, yeah. showing them what it looked like before you build the back end code. Yeah. I mean, I guess that kind of aligns to your point in that you could actually ex- get them to experience it before you put in the, inf- you know, the infrastructure. As a matter of fact, that, I used to do that exact thing. When we built the Superboard in 1973, I built a wooden mock-up of the physical board uh, that would be the shape of the case and the shape of the board, and then I took drawings of all the input modules and glued them to the surface of, the, of this wooden mock-up so that when you walked up to it, you could see exactly where what we had in mind for all the switches and what the switches were going to do and the board uh, size and physical shape of the board and where the VU meters were going to be. So it was a totally non-functional from an electronic point of view, but it was totally functional from a mechanical user point of view. Your hands go here. You could be able to reach this many sliders with your fingers. You got the sliders arranged in this order. You have the input modules with its functions laid out in this way. And so a person who is a sound engineer or a mixer could say, yeah, that's usable, or no, you can't have it that way. You need it. This function needs to be located closer to this function, that yeah. type of thing. And so, so you we were able did to that sh- a lot. And did, you, did you show the market that? Well, we showed our, we were building it more for ourselves, and um, we showed it more to our internal team. Yeah, and an external so, team. So I think that that actually is an interesting segue into kind of like, okay, so there's, I mean, a whole section of business around market studies. Right. And from our conversation in the past, you've never had success with a market study. I haven't. I've, and I've, I've done, as we got more successful in Verilite, we, we were able to afford more for formal market studies, and I hired fairly well, or actually very well-known consulting groups to perform some market studies and what I found was is that if you had a product that you wanted them to do a study on they would inevitably come back and justify it because you paid them a lot of money and they know that you really want the product to to work and so you kind of get the answer that you started out paying for in other words I never felt that I got the bad news you know and and uh Particularly when I went into the architectural area that I didn't know a lot about with Iridian, we did a very sophisticated market study that showed that this product we had in mind would would be very successful and so forth. But it didn't really prove out to be true for lots of reasons, and I, I don't think that that study really did us any good. And we spent a, a very large amount of money on it. Yeah. So I think you have to be careful, and it, I think it goes back to to the fact that you, until the customer can see it in real life and know what it's really going to cost to acquire it, you can't really get an honest answer out of it. For example, you can go to someone and say, would you take a product that will do all these features, and if you don't mention the cost, if you don't mention the price, inevitably they'll say, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds great. You can really get something that will do all that. And they say, yeah. And then you walk up and say, well, oh, by the way, it's going to cost $3,000 a week to rent or buy or whatever. 
They all know, and I, I would never know. And it would be an instant. They, they would able. They were able. They, they would be able to make an instant value judgment in their head, based on what they've seen versus what you said it was going to cost them to acquire it, and they immediately will know if they want it or not. Yeah. But you have to give them all that data. You can't just give them a bit of it. You right. can't just give them the what it's going to do and not mention the reality of what it's going to cost. Right, because people are able to project and. And then they may not be able to role play, okay, well, now that I'm in this situation, yeah. I can take this and then go extract more right. dollars from the market that I have access to. And the other thing is what I found our, one of our biggest challenges all along is as you develop a product, you have all these cost goals, but it's extremely difficult to hit them. And so you end up doing a market study saying, okay, we're going to have this product and it's going to cost $1,000. And you go out and you do the study and you come back, yes, yeah, that's, that's good, it'll work. Then you go through the process, you develop the thing, you get it all working, you find you can't do it for $1,000. You gotta be at $1,500. You say, well, everybody in the study seemed like, you know, they were pretty enthusiastic and we don't wanna do it all over again. Yeah. So we'll launch it and it's not, it's the wrong price point. Yeah, there's a lot of studies around chasing bad or dead money, yeah. right? Because yeah. you've already sunk, what, three four $400,000 yeah. into it, and maybe it's another couple hundred thousand to go after it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the reality is once you get there, you're, you've already out, you're out of the market. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's, uh, that was one of the advantages to the rental market was that we could build it in small quantities and put it out there. And if they didn't like it, we just take it back and rework it or do a different product. And uh, this thing got more complicated. It wasn't that easy because the, the development costs were so great. But... Uh, when you're building a product to sell, it's really a, a challenge to be able to hit your price points. Yeah, it's even really hard right now with SaaS products, right? Because yeah. uh, a lot of people are like, all right, well, what's the tolerance of a, another SaaS product? If you're building a marketing product, you have, you know, like even a $50 per user price point seems expensive or, re, you know, if, you're build, if, you, if you are part of a value chain with 15 other products, yeah. to have a $50 price point is actually fairly high. But you turn that into actual revenue, that means in order to have $50,000 a month in revenue, you have to have 1,000 clients. Right. Right? Well, the cost acquisition on 1,000 clients is un-effing believable. Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable to even get that close to that. Right. So, like, $50 a price point isn't reasonable in any way, shape, or form. You really need to charge three or $500 a price, yeah. you know, a, a license. Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, so then there's other tactics of getting a year-long subscription in and all these other things. But, right. um, you know, making money is hard. It is hard. <laughs> it's really difficult yeah. to and, overcome. And building anything, any kind of product, even software products or hardware products is a real challenge. Yeah, so to tie this back into your old story, we're going to take a break uh, and, and then come back in a couple minutes. Um, but I do want to talk specifically. So I think we have the theory of, okay, well, market research uh, internal dynamics, where you go. And tying it back to your story, um, there was somebody in your company who actually left and solved the gel changer problem. Right. And I want to talk about that story because I think there's some interesting anecdotes of, right. you know, specifications, tightness of spec, right. uh, when you can break from that spec. And, you know, whether, you know, just trying to be a soothsayer and figure out whether or not had you actually solved it in that way, would that have been a reasonable Thing that would have driven you to future innovations. Right. So we'll be back in a minute uh, with the mix with Matt and Dan.
Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Um, so we're talking market studies. We're talking how do you bring a product to market. Uh, we've you know, gone through a very detailed story, kind of just what happened uh, through this product development process. What were the market forces that were driving the innovations? And um, there was a, what was the guy's name at your company? Uh, his name was Kenny Whitwright. Uh, what was it? Kenny Whitwright. Kenny Whitwright. Yeah. yeah. So Kenny um, had left your company, right? Uh, but he had seen the innovations happening, or the idea that you needed to have a color changing. Well, he had actually worked on the team that, uh, internally at Choco that was working on the color changing gel okay. changer project. Yeah. So he'd spent a lot of headspace, kind of trying to solve this problem. Yeah. And the, one of the the things that held you guys back from actually being able to solve the problem was your your actual technical specification. That's correct, because we had um, we had a, a specification where certain uh, elements of the specification were absolute had to be there. And who said that? Who said this is absolute? Uh, I did. You did. So you were yeah. rigid. You were like, guys, if you're going to build this, I don't want anything less than yeah. the, these specs. And, and the number one was it had to be instantaneous color change. We and felt like it had to be, you hit a button and bam, you got a new color. And for how, from a manager's point of view, how many people came to you and were like, hey, this spec is too tight? No, I don't think anybody did because I was also consulting with the people in our lighting department. And as a group, we all concurred on this spec. But, you know, I also personally believe very strongly that it needed to be instantaneous color change. Why? Do you remember why? Because you needed to go with the rock music we were doing. So you, you felt needed, that the light needed to change on beat. Yes. And the beat was whatever, 80, Yeah, and it was in rock music, yeah. it's fast, you know. Yeah. And you needed, to, you know, it wasn't theater lighting. It was rock and roll lighting, and rock and roll lighting, color changes happen quickly. And this wasn't orchestra music, No, right? it wasn't orchestra music. Yeah. So I just felt strongly about it, and, and I've always been that way. I mean, my main role throughout Shoko and Verilite is I was the one who would decide about what our product needed to be to fit the market. That was sort of my thing. And I always had very strong feelings. Mm -hmm. And I was right a lot more than I was wrong. Right. So it was kind of a talent that I had and that I, I was able to kind of see the market and understand the market. And had, I had an intuitive feel for what I th thought would be successful. Right. So I really believe that instantaneous color change was essential. And so what that did is that drove us, because we were trying to move this 8-inch by 8-inch gel frame, it drove us to very complicated, large, expensive, heavy, noisy mechanisms because I wanted a minimum of six colors. So we had to have six mechanisms that would flip this gel frame in a quarter of a second, you know, and so it made it not feasible. Right. And that's what Bornhorst realized when he came to the project, when he looked at what we were trying to do and the specification, he said, <laughs> not going to happen. You're not going to be able to move a, something that large in front of a light that big, that, that fast in any kind of practical way. So uh, interestingly enough, several years later, J Kenny left the company probably, I forget, I think 1979. It was well before Verilite happened. But uh, after we had gotten into Verilite, Kenny came up with a different idea for a gel changer. Mm-hmm. And his idea was he would take 16 pieces of gel, each of them a different color, and he'd take a piece of scotch tape, and he would literally stick them together in a long string. 
And then he would take that big gel string and he would wrap it around two rollers that would he put motors on the rollers and he would just roll the gels back and forth in front of the light until he got to the one he wanted, then he would stop and he would do this under the control of a computer. And he called it a gel scroller. And it was very small, very lightweight, and only took up an inch or two on the front of the of the of the park can. And it gave you great color change to any of 16 colors, but not in a quarter of a second. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an instantaneous color change. It was just a far more flexible way of changing gels on a park hand, and, and it was the correct solution to that problem. So where we had specified what we were trying to do wrong. Yeah. And our vision of what we were trying to do was not correct. So... It, his, his solution was correct, but it was to a different spec. Yeah, and so his solution was actually a good fit for the theater market. It was, and it was extremely successful in the theater market, and he built a company on the idea that was extremely successful and sold tens of thousands of these units. Right. And, uh, but it didn't do what, what I wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even though it came into the market after we were uh, moving along with Verilite, uh, I, I respected it very deeply as, as a product, and I really respected what he had done to create it. But I didn't feel like it was the direction I wanted to go personally. I wanted to move on with the very light technology and the use of dichroic filters and that sort of thing because that's you I just, felt the, that that was more of a, a future yeah, market. Yeah, the other one would have been doing. a one-off or maybe chasing... Chasing well, I just felt it was it was a it was a more of an incremental advance within the the technology of the day. Right. And it was a brilliant product. I mean, it really was. It was a great solution to that, to that problem. But it taught me a real important lesson. And you have to be really careful about what you specify. You need to make sure that you really know or really think you know what a must-have feature is. You know, when you say this product has to have this to be successful, you got to be really mindful of what you're saying and make sure that that's something you've thought through. Yeah, I mean, you would have, so had that idea come into the company, it may have derailed your diacrylic filter. It would have. If it had come in, if, if he had come up with it when he was with us in the early late 70s, I'm sure we would have gone that direction and never done very light. Right. Because I would never have put Jim on the product project because it would have been solved. Right. Because it, I think if he had come up with it and we'd actually built a prototype, reduce it to reality quickly, mm -hmm. I think we would have looked at it and said, you know, that's the solution. Yeah. We have to give up on the instantaneous color change because this solves so many other problems that this is a viable product. Yeah, so the clever. So the pursuit of something, I don't even know how to like articulate it, but I mean, you were really trying to pursue something that was hard. And yeah. in doing so, you had a breakthrough because you didn't settle for something that would be considered an easier solution. Well, it... Um, I mean, you could have gotten close, right, with those wheels, like with that type of solution. It may have been a little bit louder than what they ended up with, right? But you could have gotten pretty close. On What are you speaking of now? Well, like, I mean, if you had just used those two rollers, don't you think you could have whipped the gels around? If Not, not, no, you never would have, because you see, you couldn't go from uh, a specific color to a specific color. You had to go through all the colors on the scroll. 
if the red gel was on one end of the scroll and the blue gel was on the other end of the scroll and you wanted to go from red to blue, you had to scroll through 16 colors to get there. So right. it never would have been an instantaneous. It, it never would have done what I had in my mind, which was instantaneous color change. Right. I wanted snap colors. And why did you believe that that could have happened? Why did I believe we could do it? Yeah. Like you'd never seen it. You didn't know I, it was I, I just felt that there was, it was a way to do it. And I, we actually built mechanisms that would do it. They just weren't practical. They right. were too big and too heavy and too noisy, and too so you, expensive. So you kind of got a dose or a taste of what it could be like through your prototyping. Yeah. But, but you know, you didn't, ha you didn't have the absolute answer. No. Yeah, interesting. So market studies, nah, not so much. No, and, and particularly in that time, it wouldn't have been useful at all when we were first trying to solve the color change problem because... It, it just wasn't uh, something anybody was thinking about. Yeah, and so this kind of like goes to another point, which is almost sequential in this line of thinking, which is, okay, maybe we go and niche out on a market, right? If you had kind of rolled back and said, all right, well, I want to adhere to the theater market, and I'm going to ignore the rock and roll market. Right. Um, and I, we have a concept that we talk a lot about, that demand creates a vacuum. Right. Right? It, like, once you have the idea, demand will pull it through. And that's really, in my opinion, what you're looking for when you mock something up. That's correct. Is you want somebody to walk up to that wooden board and say, dude, I got to have this. When is the real one going to be done? And they're calling you every week until you get it done. Right. That's, a sound, that's what demand sounds that's like. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. It's different. You know, it's different than begging somebody to read your marketing materials and then convert. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think if you think about it, I mean, most people, when they see something, it's when they, it resonates and they want it. Right. It's rare that you see something on a piece of paper. Sometimes you do. You'll see a product and you think, yeah, that's something that I've been thinking about. I, that's something that fits in with what I've been thinking, but. Yeah, and there are most situations. Most of the time, it takes a physical experience. I mean, most of what we really focus on in our marketing efforts with people is, uh, you know, dynamic versus static communication. Like yeah. most people start businesses are unbelievable at dynamic communication. Yeah. Right? You can sit here. You could even tell me your vision for the snap yeah. color change, and I'd be like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I really want to buy that from you. But you writing that down on a sheet of paper and then getting me to understand your vision when you haven't worked it all out, uh, right. when you don't really know the value of it, you just know that it's something of value. Right. Very difficult to move into static. And even if you look at the biggest companies in the world, most of the time they're less than 5% static. Yeah. Right? But it's a big problem. And when businesses get to a certain size and shape, uh, you know, they start ringing our, our phone because <laughs> they're like, hey, I, I don't know why I'm doing all these things and they won't do it. And it's... It's because they didn't, you know, then you have to go way back to the beginning and start yeah. building it up from, uh, we call them isotopes, you right. know, like little just nuclear radioactive little elements that punch through yeah. what your value is into the mind of the user. And that's hard, you know. It is. And a lot of times you don't really know for sure what that, that thing is about a product that really brings somebody in. And like I said before earlier on, in our case, with Verilite, as much as we visualized all these things, the moving beams was really, I think, the main feature that was the most powerful in the early days of it to make it successful. 
and it was something that we really had never visualized until we saw it happen in the shop. So we, 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 well, it wasn't on the spec. It never was on the spec. It just happened to be a result of what we built. We yeah, got lucky. But, and, but, I mean, they had moving lights since the 1920s, right? Yeah. So it wasn't even the moving lights. It was the moving lights plus your innovation. It was, it was moving it, plus it, it was the way. It was the way that the beams looked. They were hard-edged. They were bright. Yeah. They were white-colored. And they were moved quickly. The pan and tilt on these lights was fast. The computer control made it all synchronized and repeatable. Yep. And so um, I remember when we introduced the VL1 in Japan, we opened up a company in Japan, but we went there with the, with, uh, with the Genesis Tour. And um, I remember when we got there, the in, you know, Japan was a fairly small market for lighting people. There was a very robust professional stage lighting industry in Japan, but it was all concentrated in Tokyo because that's sort of the biggest city in the whole country and that's where everybody is. And uh, so all the lighting people were all there. And they, everybody was, they couldn't wait to see all of the lights focused on Phil Collins playing drums. They just wanted to see all the lights in the rig focused on one spot because they had never been able to do anything like that with fixed lights because you could never ever take the luxury of taking every light in your lighting rig and focusing it manually into one place. That's amazing. And so that was the big, that was the big moment in the Did show. Did you, you just hear it in the show? Like everybody was yeah, like, Yeah, well, no, they were, I heard about it before and after, and everybody wrote up about it in the papers, and it was just, uh, so it was really exciting, and it was that visual impact of all those beams moving around. And it's still, when you look at television today, you still see all these moving beams and all that, yeah. which is the essence of the early Verilite. But interestingly enough, it was only important in rock and roll and concert tours. When we took those lights originally to the theater market, they had no interest whatsoever in seeing light beams move because that's not the way theater lighting is done. Theater lighting is all about subtle, slow changes and trying to make scenes on stage look realistic and slowly go from one to the other. The idea of jarring color changes and quick and white light beams flashing around, in fact, in the early days, the theater people called us wiggle lights in a derogatory fashion because they, they just could see no value whatsoever in these light beams moving around. So if we had, had been mark, if we had been depending upon that market for our success, we would have failed because they also would never have paid 250 bucks a week for a wiggle light. They right. just didn't see the need. Whereas in the concert market, it was so exciting and added so much to the show. And the concert lighting is different. You know, in a theater, you got 2,500 people in a very intimate environment. When you walk into a hockey arena, you've got 20,000, 30,000 people that are looking at the stage from a long way away. It's not a homier, warm environment. It's a very cold, large space built for basketball games. You're trying to turn it into a a theater, so to speak. So you want things to have big impact. You want something that people can see from a long way. So these light beams moving and changing color had big impact. It was a big 
big thing. And for the rock people, it was, they loved it and they were willing to pay for it. And that's what drove our success was that niche. And then as time went by, we started building more Verilite products and various models they're aimed to open that niche, and we, over time, were able to be very successful in theater and television and all these other lighting markets that had their own needs that were a little different from the rock market, but we were able to cover them all, and at the end of the day, we, re we revolutionized theatrical professional lighting in every market uh, all, all over the world. Yeah, because you were able to then, it was, but it wasn't the VL1 that did that, no. right? You had to do the two, the three, the four. Yeah. And when you got to the five, yeah. you had probably enough. No, we know. actually went all the way up to 10. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, but wasn't the five one of, like, very popular? It in? was huge. And that was, that was, uh, that was a wash light that yeah. uh, was extremely successful in theater and television and, and touring. Yeah, and then, but... Like you're building out the niche, and so in your opinion, if you're giving an advice to an entrepreneur or somebody who's building a new product, your advice is to just unapologetically go for a niche. Absolutely. Right? And just, just even if there's something like where the product is being used, you want to take the new product to a new niche, make that product fit in that niche perfectly. That's right. Or at least have one killer feature that, that the people will pay for. Right. Uh, in that niche. And then, as you get in the niche, fill out all the features that that niche wants. Right. And then start looking to broaden that niche into other markets. Because most, particularly in the, in the light, you know, when you think about stage lighting or professional lighting, you don't really think about it being different from one type of light or, or use to another. But it's very different. Television lighting is completely different from rock and roll lighting which is completely different from theater lighting, which is even different from corporate show lighting or, and event lighting because your needs and your environment and the type of what you're trying to accomplish is different. And so it requires different kinds of equipment. And uh, it took a while for us to understand that and be able to tweak the products so that they had features that would satisfy the users in those various segments. Mm -hmm. But that just takes time and Again, it was the advantage of the rental market model because we were there with the, sh the lights on every gig we did. We were working directly with the designers, and so we were able to learn what was good and what wasn't good, and we were able to then keep making adjustments and adding yeah, features. I, I think of that a little bit in terms of every market has a shape, yeah. you know, and like even even kind of different slices of the same pie, you know, each one of those pie, you know, they have a different shape and you have to have a business that fits that shape. That's right. And that goes all the way out to your language and your nomenclature of how you yeah. call things and identify things and where you put your priorities yeah. and where they can trust. Like most businesses based on trust, right? Right. Like consumer confidence level never really meant anything to me until I got a little older and I was like, Oh yeah, they're saying like, how yeah. much do you trust that this thing is going to keep going forward? Yeah. And so if you're building relationships based on trust, and they don't trust that you have their interest aligned, right. and you're not showing that turning that trust into actual product features and things that they can use to go make money themselves, then you know your whole business falls apart. That's right. And, the, and our business was completely built on trust because our relationships with our clients was built over years, and once they believed in the equipment, they, they were going to stay with us because... 
you think about it, if you are doing the lighting for a major event and for some reason the lights stop working in the middle of the event, the event ceases. So you, you've got this enormous amount of money at stake. And if the lighting doesn't work, you can't carry on with the show. So the, the financial consequences are overwhelming. Yeah. As a result, we were, our reputation became vital to us as far as people believing that if they rented our equipment and used our services, that every show that we did, there was not going to be that kind of problem. There wasn't going to be a showstopper. And I went to extreme lengths to, to support and always make sure that we, that we delivered because if we, I knew that if in the theater mar- or the television market in particular, which is a live market, you're on the, you're on the air, it's yeah. not taped. If you have a problem, you're, that's the, you're never going to do another television show. Yeah, and no. to make that story real, like you, I do remember you telling me what you did. Like you were having a technical problem at the Academy yeah. Awards. That's right. Because every year we do the we did we still do the or company does the Academy Awards, and uh, our primary designer uh, was a, a man named Bob Dickinson, and still is a, a major client of of the company, and. We were uh, in rehearsals, and um, we were had we were having problems with the light board. We couldn't we couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, and we kept working on it and trying to handle it by phone. And it appeared we couldn't. It was a very weird problem that just we just couldn't get our arms around, and we felt like it was a software issue. And so we were getting down to the to the wire where we were running out of time to get the problem solved. And so um, I rented a Learjet and uh, flew the head of our software group from Dallas to L.A. He was at a in an event. He had a tux on. And <laughs> he showed up at the plane in his tux, and we got on there, and we just flew him to L.A. And when he got there, he was able to sort out the issue. It ended up being a power problem and not a software problem. But um, like that, that cost us about twenty-five grand to do that, but... If I hadn't, if, if we had had any kind of problem that would have jeopardized an on-air live Academy Award show, I would, I would never have done another gig in L.A. So it was kind of, you know, I knew that I had to, to do whatever I had to do to solve this issue and support it. And that, that effort and the fact that we did that really just added to our reputation and added to our, the lore about our devotion to quality and making sure that our service was uh, unsurpassed our clients interesting yeah so you gotta sometimes you gotta pony up and put your money where your mouth is right absolutely yeah quality first you also have to understand the, the leverage of what not performing will do to you and right not, a lot of times you don't realize when you don't perform how far reaching the consequences of that can be yeah, it's interesting uh, building prototypes and, and putting things out there. That's the actual danger, right? Yeah. Is that you're building these relationships and, and the, the technology just doesn't work and yeah. you really end up in a, in a bad place so from a company point of view. you have to make sure you're covered and, and, yeah. you know, and don't, don't try something new without something to fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, uh, that and more, we're going to talk um, about one of the most important concepts uh, in building an entrepreneurial-based company, uh, building ideas, um, and we will share that secret when we get back 
uh, with the mix with Matt and Dan. To the mix with Matt and Dan. Um, so, one of the things we were talking about in entrepreneurism, we you know today we've kind of covered a lot, right? Like you know how like what's the best way to mock up a product, or like what's the best way to bring a product to mark market, mocking it up, showing people kind of that balance, uh, not something you can outsource, not something you can really do outside your niche. A lot of these Silicon Valley startups that really get outside their niche and become disruptive. Um, a lot of curiosity around those because that's such a unicorn, right? It's a unicorn to hit something out of the park, but it's a double unicorn to really go into a whole new market that you've never been in, that you've yeah. never been in, and dominate. Um, one of the most important things that you claim as far as being a, a successful business is to what? I think it's to execute, and yeah. I think by that I mean to execute your planned. Once you've got the product. Um, mocked up and you you know what you're going to build and you've secured the funding for it and so forth you, you lay out a development schedule and it's really important to hit that schedule and it's also important to hit the budget you know to hit the number that you think it's going to cost to produce the product when it's in production and also the cost to develop it and uh, that's very challenging to do those two things it's it's hard to to, do, to manage an engineering and development group to produce on time. And it's also hard to develop a product that works, that doesn't require all kinds of rework and retrofits and replacements and support. And I, I think that's one of the things that, that I admire the most about Apple is I think their ability to come up with their products on a schedule and to have them produced in such enormous quantity and to have them work out of the box with a minimum of retrofits and recalls and failures. I mean, they've had a few, but overall, when you think of the scale that they're operating at, I think it's their strongest suit. Mm -hmm. And I think that as you get successful and as you have a lot of products and your, and your company's larger and so forth, I think that it, it's a, a big part of, of developing your, your product release schedule, you know, your kind of your product roadmap of what you need to do over the next three or four or five years is you have to be able to plan the incremental changes to allow you to to manage your production schedules, development schedules, and budgets better. You know, when you're building something brand new that you've never built before, it's much more challenging to know how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost. I mean, it, whereas if you're doing incremental improvements and you're doing incremental changes, then you can get better. You minimize the risk of the development cycle and the costs and so forth. So it's kind of a balance, you know, of... Do I try to do something with a complete clean sheet type product or do I keep working on my incremental improvements? Where, where do you think that comes from? Because you had a massive amount of experience with PhD level engineers 
right? I mean, people yeah. who were just insanely far on the engineering schedule where they just were not going to ever become a salesperson, right? right? And then you also had people inside the organization who were salespeople who were out doing, you know, glad-handing right. and doing all that. And those are really completely different types of people. Right. I um, mean, you know, nowadays we put a technical sales rep in between those people because there has to be some sort of stopgap, right? right? Like, you know, getting everybody with all those diverse personalities together is very difficult. Um, those lessons that you learned, I mean, would you say that, sometimes the sales reps or the people who are representing the market were unreasonable? Or would you say that like engineering was following the engineering path and that that was maybe too pure for what the market needed? Like where does that signal come from? Or is it that it, once you have the organizational built, you have to listen to everything because it really pops up in different places? I think, I think the main driver of it is competition because you can't, you have to come up with a, a new products every, you know, it depends on what, what business you're in, I suppose. But you, in our case, you needed something new every year to two years. You know, I mean, two years was too long, and, and ideally you needed it every year or so. And it takes a long time to develop a product, you know. So um, it really... It really was, and I always felt we were being driven by external forces in the sense that our customers had expectations of us coming up with something, you know, new, and our competitors coming up with things to challenge us in the market. And so we just didn't have the luxury of just sitting around waiting until something finally got done. We had to try to force it to a deadline. Mm-hmm. In the early days, when we were first getting going, we had hardcore deadlines because we were totally dependent on the Genesis schedule. And when we took that first money from Tony, you know, we promised to show up in Barcelona, Spain, September 27, 1981. And there wasn't any negotiations involved with that schedule. It was, it had to be done, end of story. And we lived under that kind of pressure in the early days because in order to get a new product out, I had to sell it ahead of time and then get the money for it ahead of time and promise to deliver. So we were always fighting a hardcore, non-negotiable deadline. And the entire in entertainment industry is sort of built around that because it's the show starts at 8 o'clock and you got to be ready. So your gear's got to work and you have to design equipment that can handle the environment and yeah. So there's sort of an ethos about it, but as the company got bigger and more successful and the engineering group got bigger and bigger, it became a bigger and bigger challenge to figure out how to get things done on a timely basis right. and have it work. Right. You know, because you got more and more people involved and you had bigger teams and the comp, you know, the coordination and communication and you know, everything was dependent on everybody else and so yeah, and the competition or the, you know, the nature of that industry from what I learned when I worked in it a little bit was, you know, it just had to work that day. Yeah. Right? So you get a lot of fly-by-night competitors because, you know, right. they, they can throw together, pretty much anybody can string yeah. together something interesting yeah. to look at for a day. Yeah. But, man, you try and replicate that over a 1,000 days in 28 right. countries exactly. with the massive logistics headaches that, that come along with it, and it's a different beast. It is. Yeah. So, um, so execution, 
this is the number Execution. one thing, right? That's, that's do what it. you say when you say you're going to do it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that is the biggest single challenge to being successful in business. But, I mean, to take that even further, crystallize it a little bit more before we wrap up, it's not just, like, execution. It's execution to the schedule and to what the business needs are, right? right? Like, you can figure out something amazing, but if you figured it out outside the scope of the project or you're working on a new innovation that's outside the current development cycle and you're coming up with a brand new product when the truth is is all you need is an iteration, right? then that's not productive and that doesn't no. yield the results. No, like you, and, it, and that's an easy mistake to make is to chase something like that and not do an iter- iterative product. Right. There's been several advan- examples in our industry where a company had a really fantastically successful product and instead of doing a a version of it that was just an, a major improvement of it, they started over and really hurt themselves and uh, lost a big part of their market because they couldn't execute on the, the new idea because it was too far advanced. It was too much ahead of the market. You know, it's the old thing about the being, you got to be careful not to be on the bleeding edge of the market. You want to be just, a, you know, you want yeah. to be you want to be innovative, but you want to be careful. Yeah, there's a lot of really sophisticated software businesses that really just acquire or copy, right? right. You know, there's a couple of good examples in the software market right now. I'm not going to call anybody out, yeah. but you know, really, they're just straight up copying all the good ideas. They let yeah. the innovations happen. Um, well, a lot of people do that. I mean, it's a lot cheaper to do that than try to have them in R and D budget to create those ideas. I mean, Microsoft did that, right? Microsoft just pretty much copied Apple's innovations. And then when Apple started going defunct, right, and lost that innovation cycle, the whole market really went into chaos, right? It went all towards manufacturing and companies like Dell came about, you know, meaning like the ability to get everything down to the lowest cost. And then the market got really boring, right? It did. It didn't have stability, remember? I mean, even yeah. before Apple made its comeback, at the peak of what would be the PC market when they owned 90% of the market, the, the products were riddled with holes. Right. They had, you know, sp- uh, you know, spam in all of the products. They were completely hackable. Uh, every time you wanted to install a printer, there was like 94 drivers to put on there. Right. And um, so, I mean, that running by itself does not yield... I think the beauty and the the dream of great products that we all kind of want in our lives. No, but the genius of, of Microsoft was they 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 understood the standardization and the power of, of everybody wanting the same thing. Yeah, and you, that and that and when they finally did that, you know, the market had not standardized and all the software was different. And and I think when they came in, and also there was it was all. Um, when they partnered with IBM, if you recall, and uh, IBM was the thing that gave the market confidence because the PC market in the early stages was all these little startups and nobody, particularly corporate people, you know, were nervous about committing to companies that might not survive. When IBM entered the market, it was this, oh, okay, they're going to be here. So they were able to standardize the market by sheer force of their... Their who brand. they were, yeah, and then the fact that Microsoft was able to license the operating system on every one of those machines—that was the game over, you know. And, and uh, it really took Apple reinventing the whole computer market to the iPhone 
in order for them to change that that situation. And what's interesting is Microsoft is still booming and incredibly successful, and Apple is now the largest company in the world, but they've done it on a completely new platform that is proprietary. You know, that's the other thing that Apple did that was different was they did not give away their their software. They didn't they didn't allow it to become commoditized. You know, but one of my favorite decisions that Steve Jobs ever made was just just I think because of the karmic side of it. Like, you know, he he saw he was at the helm of Apple yeah. when they had the opportunity to run to license their operating system yeah. and he said no. Right. right, famously was like, no, we're not going to license it. We're going to keep it for ourselves. Right. And then he got copied, and he had to deal with the fact that he got copied, and he lost right. 90% of the market, right? You did. He was faced with the exact same decision with the iPhone. He was the exact same decision. He had the opportunity to say, okay, we've got the new operating system. We can either become Microsoft and license it, or we'll just be Apple and just be Apple. And it was against that or the Android, because the Android was coming out. And he had the opportunity to take the whole market, and he didn't. Nope. You know, he'd made the same decision twice. But this time, he's got the highest margins in the business. That's right. Yeah, so even though he didn't sell as many phones, he makes more money than everybody else. Or not he, but Apple. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, in his, he fi Apple finally made the proprietary model work. Right. And they're the only company in the world that's ever done it. They're able to do it and maintain high margins, and it's because the software and the hardware work so beautifully together, and because they built the ecosystem yep. that includes all of the various products together, which nobody else really does. You know, the watch and the computers and the phones, all that. I mean, once you get in there, it's really hard to ever give all that up because it's so seamless. Yeah, that's true. And their stuff works. No, it... You know, it the relentlessly the, works. It just yeah. works. And yeah. The, and, and that's, that's why that I goes actually, back to execution, you know. That's why I use it. I mean, I'm all Apple. I'll never, you know, until yeah. they mess up, I'm not going back. Me too. Um, and people question. I'm like, dude, because I don't want to deal with the ass whooping of a computer. Right. You know, I will say I think they missed on the watch. I think it's a miss. It could be, but they're, they seem to be selling a lot of them and. They seem to be and making. They keep getting better. I know it's nice to be able to tell a trillion dollar company that they missed on a product that probably <laughs> yields them several billion dollars a day. Exactly. <laughs> that's my power. I can say whatever I want into this microphone, and it goes out <laughs> into the world. So, uh, thanks for being here, and we're yep. going to do uh, several more of these. So stay tuned. Um, we're going to try and keep them a little lighter than all the deep dive into right. the technical, and really just get into the business side of how do you build a product? How do you take it to market? And how do you build an international, worldwide company with a bunch of offices and several thousand employees? And yep. We should you... also talk about intellectual property because that was a big part of our story, too. We're going to do that on the next one. We're going to focus solely on patents. Right. And, uh, and we'll go from there. So thanks for listening to The Mix with Matt and Dan. <laughs>